Good morning. I'm Pastor Glenn Thomas, senior pastor here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in DePere, Missouri. And we welcome all for our pastor's Bible class on this Festival of the All Saints. Uh, welcome those who are here in person in our gymnasium, socially distanced. And we welcome all who join us also, uh, KFUO, 850 AM here in the St. Louis area, as well as worldwide online at kfuo.org. As is usually our practice here, we're going to be taking a look at the scripture lessons that will be assigned not for today, not for the Festival of All Saints, but assigned for next Sunday. And so we'll be looking at Amos 5, starting at verse 18. We'll be looking at 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting at verse 13, and Matthew 25, starting at verse 1. Uh, before we dive into God's word, though, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, especially on this day, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your love for all people, demonstrated so clearly through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit's calling us to faith, enlightening us with his gifts, and keeping us in that same true faith, especially as we think today and give you thanks for those saints who have gone before us. We pray that you also will keep us in this one true faith until you call us to join them in the everlasting marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom. Be with us then, sending your Holy Spirit to guide us as we continue our study in your word this day. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we'll be taking a look at the lessons for next Sunday, November 8. Uh, for those who are here, there are sheets of paper over on the side that do have the readings printed out and uh, Bibles as well, if you would like. Uh, there's a wonderful continuity we're going to see uh, with the lessons for next Sunday. As we approach the end of the church year calendar, and of course Advent starting right after Thanksgiving this year, in fact we'll be having midweek Advent services on December 2. I know some of you are not ready to think about Advent and Christmas perhaps yet, but it is coming. And uh, as we wind down the church year, we also... In the readings, you'll notice one of the emphases, at least in the readings, is that talking about the winding down toward uh, of life here on this earth as well, and the coming of our Lord, and, and the new heaven and new earth, and so on. So you'll notice that in the readings. It is sometimes frustrating for pastors because that's another of the emphases in Advent. So you go through the end of the church year, and you've preached a number of times on the end times, and here comes Advent, and there it is again. So we try purposely to look out ahead and not be too repetitive uh, and look at perhaps other ways of approaching uh, different texts for the week. But uh, it's pretty hard to avoid it. Uh, next Sunday, it's, it's clear in Amos where we have the coming of the day of the Lord, and we'll talk about what that means. Uh, it is definitely there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, that is the epistle lesson, and it's absolutely there in the parable that Christ tells about the ten virgins or the ten maidens and the five wise and the five foolish and the bridegroom coming. I mean, that's a clear uh, reference to the second coming of Christ. So that theme runs pretty predominantly across all three lessons for next Sunday. Let's take a look, first of all, at the Old Testament lesson, and that's, uh, again, from the book of Amos. Uh, just a little context, a little background. Now, Amos, we know from his introduction, he gives us a great uh, setting of when he actually wrote. And uh, we line it up with the uh, kings or the leaders uh, whom he names 
uh, in the very beginning of his book. And so we know he, he prophesied from 792 B.C. until 740 B.C. So about 52 years there was his period. Now, let's stop and think about that. He is done at 740 B.C. Eighteen years later, in 722 B.C., God is going to raise up the Assyrians to come and bring judgment upon the northern tribes and essentially, uh, not essentially, conquer them, absolutely conquer them. Um, And after that, we don't hear a lot about the northern tribes any longer. And so he is just before that time period. And then a little bit later, about 140 years later, in 586 B.C., we've got God raising up the Babylonians to bring, again, judgment on his people. In this case, the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin, along with Judah, and take many of them into captivity. So when you read through the book of Amos, you will find him prophesying uh, judgment to both the northern tribes to the southern tribes, and even to all the nations as well. And so we're going to see today an example of that in the verses that we have. But Amos is primarily judgment. Uh, Amos is not, if, uh, <laughs> if you're wanting something uplifting, uh, Amos may not be the first book you would turn to, I think, and, and uh, read. Uh, it, is, it is a lot of judgment. In fact, in our elders... Uh, we do a Bible study ongoing with our elders and, and go through a book of the Bible. And we were doing Amos, and week after week we met, we said, well, it's kind of the same as last week. It's going to be judgment and, and doom. And uh, finally, in, in near the end, there's, a, there's an uplifting portion. And, and there is one little verse at the end of today's that will be the same way. Um, now, this is against a, a backdrop of God's people thinking that they are God's people, and everything is just fine. There's nothing to worry about that when God comes uh, on the so-called day of the Lord, which we'll see and talk about, that in fact, instead of being judged, they're going to be blessed. They're going to be be elevated. And they had that understanding, and so they were actually praying and hoping for the day of the Lord to come. And Amos is going to tell them, you got another thing coming. You know, why, why are you praying for the day of the Lord? It's not going to be what you think it's going to be for you. And uh, maybe we can get into a little discussion about what some people think of today or the concepts, the misguided concepts some people have today when they think about the second coming of Christ or uh, if they even acknowledge a second coming of Christ, perhaps. But you'll see Amos bringing about a call for judgment, God's judgment upon his people because of their idolatry. They're turning away from God and to other gods and just going through the motions when it came to God. You know, they show up at the temple at the right time, do all the sacrifices, but it was a mechanical going through it. You get the same from Isaiah. You know, he talks about this people who honor me with their lips, and yet their heart is far from me. And that's the way it is. Uh, Amos is, is attacking the same sort of thing, just going through the motions in a mechanical, meaningless sort of way. There's no, no relationship there whatsoever of faith. Um, from that also flowed injustice. They would actually take advantage of one another, exploit one another. Uh, uh, there's a, a famous section in Amos about how they cheated one another. 
uh, in business and so on. And so instead of thinking of themselves as brothers and sisters, as we do today, brothers and sisters in Christ, they looked at their brothers and sisters as people whom they could exploit for their own benefit, for their own profit. Um, so um, abusing, we might say, or exploiting uh, God's fellow members. And then finally in Amos, we see that God is, is going to preserve a remnant, a small remnant that is going to be preserved, and it's through that remnant, that faithful remnant, that God will end up keeping his promise to bring forth a Savior, one who, as he said in Genesis 3.15, would crush the head of Satan and fulfill that promise. So uh, it's sort of with that uh, backdrop uh, that we go into the, uh, the Old Testament lesson for today, uh, and that is Amos 5, starting at verse 18. And we'll look at verses 18 through 24. And uh, it's rather short, so why don't we just read it. I'll read it through first, and then we'll go back and, and uh, kind of comment on different portions of it. So starting at verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. As if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall, and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light, and gloom and no brightness in it? I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Okay? So until that last verse, it's, you can see what I, that's kind of the tenor of Amos. Uh, very much a, a, a judgment. Starting off, the very first word, verse 18, woe. And there is a, a, um, a uh, type of prophecy in the Old Testament that is called a woe oracle. A woe oracle. And this is one of them. Isaiah is full of them. And it's when God, through the prophet, says woe. That's not stop. That's woe like you're gonna, you, better t you better take notice here. This is not going to be good. And this little section here is one of the woe oracles in the Old Testament. So woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. So the day of the Lord is when God is going to come and demonstrate his power, his glory, his righteousness, and his judgment in this case. So the day of the Lord is a reference to the coming judgment. Um, in the New Testament, you know, we have the day of the Lord Jesus Christ that is used repeatedly in different sections talking about again that day when Christ is going to come to judge between the living and the dead and that's where Jesus will go in the gospel lesson but in media context here the day of the Lord is talking about again the day that God is going to come and demonstrate his glory his righteousness and his judgment and again for the northern tribes that's going to be in 722 southern tribes 586 now those it's not like they weren't uh, having problems before each of those dates, but those are the, day, uh, the dates that the curtain came down on the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. So you can kind of get the idea here from verse 18 
that they are actually desiring the day of the Lord. And Amos is reaching out to them here and saying, why in the world would you desire what is going to come? Why? Because, again, they had a completely uh, erroneous understanding of what was going to come on the day of the Lord. They thought, again, that when God would come in his righteousness and so on, that they actually were going to be elevated even further as God's people and that they were going to be blessed in abundance on that day. So they were praying for it. They were hoping it was going to come and uh, couldn't wait for it to come. And Amos here is telling them, uh, you better think again about that. It's not going to be that way. Uh, So he says there, you know, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? And then here it comes. It is darkness and not light. In other words, it is something to be dreaded, not something to be looked forward to in great and joyous anticipation, just the opposite. So they will, uh, instead of being, uh, instead of again being blessed in abundance, they are going to be judged and found wanting. Okay, and you can think of the different ways that you know darkness is used in the scriptures as a uh, an image uh, for you know you've got the the darkness um, when God comes on Mount Sinai and comes and you've got the great clouds and the thunder and the darkness up there. It's kind of a scary uh, type of thing. Um, so darkness and, and John uses this a lot in the Gospel of John: the darkness versus light. And the darkness is judgment and sin and condemnation. Okay? Um, then let's go to verse uh, 19. Uh, it's kind of a the way of saying it here is you can't escape. In other words, don't think you're going to escape this. It's as if a man fled from a lion. So the man is happy. He got away from the lion. And then look what happens. A bear would meet him. So I got away from the lion. Oh! There's a bear coming now. In other words, you're, you're not going to escape this. It's sort of the inevitable is going to come. You are going to be in trouble. You may think you got away from a lion. There's a bear. Or you go into a house and, uh, you know, put your hand, lean up against a wall, and you get bit by a serpent, okay? And this is almost kind of a, an idiom uh, at that time. And I don't know, I was trying to think of a, of a similar saying that we might have today, and all I could think of, again, is that there's no way you're going to avoid it, you know? It's going to get you in the end. In other words, your judgment is going to get you. And the images of the, the lion and the bear and the serpent, are, again, are all used to, bring, uh, to uh, symbolize uh, judgment. And there's no escaping it. You may think you got away from it, but you won't, okay? Uh, and, and a serpent bit him. So uh, then... Um, Verse 20, is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light? Um, Again, this darkness, I was just thinking uh, as well. Remember, darkness was the ninth of the ten plagues in Egypt. And then you've got the Passover happening under the cover of darkness. And again, as I said before, you've got God up on Mount Sinai with that incredible display of uh, thunder and darkness. So darkness is, you know, people would, in Old Testament, would associate that, that darkness um, with not something good, uh, just the opposite. Okay? 
And again, as John does in the New Testament as well. So again, it's darkness and not light, um, and, and gloom with no brightness in it. So I can't make it much, much more uh, clear, I think, much more direct to them, that this is not going to be a good day for you. you know, why would you pray for it? Now, we go into another section in verse 21, and just stop for a moment and think about if we heard a message like this from God, that basically he is rejecting all of their worship, all of their sacrifices, all of their prayers, um, anything and everything that they are doing directed toward him, he, uh, he will not listen to it. He says he hates it. He despises it. And that is, again, a consequence of or a result of their just going through the motions when it, came, when it comes to God. And, uh, in fact, you know, worship, uh, quote-unquote, worshiping God, but then also worshiping the false gods around them, kind of hedging their bets. So look at how this is really kind of harsh when you, when you read it. I hate, I despise your feasts. Now, those are probably a reference to the three feasts that God's people in the Old Testament were commanded to keep. Uh, there is the Passover, first of all, and I think we all know the story behind that, the killing of the Passover lamb, uh, just prior to the exodus then from Egypt. And then, of course, uh, the uh, Passover lamb becomes a pointing ahead to the Lamb of God who is going to come and take away the sins of the world. So there was the Passover. That was uh, one feast. Then there was the Feast of Pentecost, which was more or less a harvest feast. And that held usually uh, in the spring, our, our, our spring of the year here. And we know, of course, uh, it was Pentecost when... Uh, the Holy Spirit came in a miraculous way to the church. The, the Jews were in Jerusalem from all over the inhabited world at that time. Uh, when it, uh, the Holy Spirit came, there were tons of fire, remember, on them, and they were speaking in different known languages at that time. So that's the second. <clears throat> and then there's the Feast of Booths, B-O-O-T-H-S, which is usually in the fall of the year. In fact, I looked it up this year. It was October 2 through October 9, actually sundown, on October 2 till sundown October 9. Remember the Jewish day is from sundown to sundown, not from sunup to sunup uh, as we do. Uh, <clears throat> that festival of booze uh, was a remembrance of when God's people were out in the wilderness and uh, people would celebrate it. I don't know if they still do this today, but they would actually come to Jerusalem and then some of them would go out and actually live in booths or little, little small tabernacles out in the wilderness there. And it was to remind them of how God supplied them through their journey in the wilderness. So there were these three festivals that God himself commanded them to do. And look at what he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. Well, it's not that he changed his mind and now he doesn't like these. He commanded them to do them, but it's, the, again, their, their heartless way of keeping them was, you know, he said, forget it. Uh, I've had it. I, I, even to the point I hate and I despise. Those are harsh words, you know, uh, coming from God. Um, then going on, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Perhaps a solemn assemblies here we think is probably referring to simply their regular weekly worship, not the feasts, but their regular uh, daily sacrifices, for example, and uh, worship and praise. Uh, in, in the temple. He takes uh, no delight in those. 
And notice there, now we get to the sacrifices, which again God commanded. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. So again, the very things that God commanded, he is saying, I reject them. I will not accept them. Uh, don't even, might as well not even bother. Um, notice in verse 23, God is not impressed with their singing either, or their songs. Uh, take away from me the noise. So God just hears it as a bunch of clatter. Uh, take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Okay? So again, just think of the, the, um, what, the statement that God is making there. Uh, how would we feel if, if that were the message that came to us? Wow. I mean, it's just devastating that, that the worship that, that we are offering to God is detested by him. Uh, is something that, you know, again, it, it's, it would be hard, uh, hard to hear for sure. Now, verse 24. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So what, what Amos is praying for here, what God is, is, in, is trying to encourage, is that instead of injustice and exploiting God's people, let justice roll down. You get, you get the idea of a rolling stream coming down a hill here. Let it roll down uh, the, the mountains and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream instead of one that's, you know, maybe only uh, flowing in the spring and it's dry the rest of the year, let it flow uh, continually. And so what we take here is that that is the result of something else happening. In other words, there's not first going to be justice and righteousness. First of all, God's people have to repent and be justified in their own heart and receive God's righteousness from him and then there will be an outward and acceptable justice and righteousness. So it's really a call not just for outward, uh, clean up your act. It's really a call for a repentance and a turning of your hearts uh, away from the false gods and toward God. And then these things will follow. Okay? It's sort of similar to what we talk about today that there is an, uh, an outward righteousness, or Luther called it a civic or a civil righteousness that people can demonstrate, right? We're, we're uh, kind, we're, we're uh, uh, um, you know, good toward other people, we try to help them when they're in need and so on. But does that righteousness help us one iota when it comes to our eternal standing with God? No, no. And of course, um, people who are, are non-Christians can do wonderful acts in the eyes of men, such as, for example, donate, let's just say, donate a million dollars to a hospital um, to help people. And, and we would never say, well, that's terrible. Of course, that's not terrible. But again, it's not going to help them in one, uh, one spec. Uh, if they think it is, again, they've got something uh, mistaken there, right? It is only, again, that relationship of faith and trust with Jesus Christ that then shows itself in outward acts of righteousness with which God is pleased, right? 1 Corinthians 12, 3, it, with, with, uh, it is impossible to please God 
without faith, right? And no one can say Jesus is Lord without the power of the Holy Spirit. So, again, he's calling for first an inward and then an outward turning away, all right? Now, this might be a good point to just have a little discussion here, even with, even with masks on. This is kind of where angels fear to tread here, but we'll try it. Um, I mentioned that God's people, in this case, had a misguided understanding of what was going to happen on the day of the Lord. Let's go beyond God's people and just think today about people in general. What are some of the misguided uh, understandings they have or misguided opinions they have about what's going to happen on the last day? you think of any? Ruth? Yes, this is the first one that came to my mind, that everyone is going to be in heaven or, or is going to be in the, the great uh, world to come. They may not even call it heaven. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've believed or haven't believed, uh, this is kind of a, uh, has a, fra- a description uh, called universalism. In other words, everybody is going to be saved. And you'll hear some people say, oh, you know, salvation is like a mountaintop peak here. And we, we may all be on different paths going up the mountain, but eventually we will all make it up there. Okay? Now hold that thought until we get to the gospel lesson. <laughs> Jesus is going to shut that down in a, in a big hurry. Uh, but yes, I think that is the first one that I, that I thought of uh, is just a, a universalism, which is very popular among some people. And, you know, it sounds nice and it sounds good. And, you know, after all, God is love. And on the last day, he's going to smile and just say, oh, that's all right, come on in. But remember, God is a God of love and compassion. There's no question. He is also a God of justice. And fortunately for us, he meted out his justice on his son instead of on us. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, that our bodies will be raised, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, and there'll be a much... uh, different uh, di- different in the sense of improved, no longer impact of sin on us. And so that would be something that, yes, we would ascribe to that, definitely. Uh, any other ideas, though, about misconceptions or mis- misguided ideas? Yes. That's the other one I thought of. Thank you. That it's simply not going to happen. That you uh, live out whatever years you've got here on this earth, you go in the ground, and that's it. It's done. It's all over. And I don't know about you, and I, it's, it's probably great on this day, on a festival of all saints, to talk about this very thing. That, you know, we as Christians certainly grieve when someone dies because, again, death is described in the Scriptures as the last enemy to be defeated, and death still pulls away from us, our loved ones and our friends, But as Paul says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We have the hope of the resurrection by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I've often wondered, I guess you have to ask each person individually that might believe this, but, you know, to me there is no hope in that whatsoever, in that understanding that you're here, you live, you die, and that's it. So what is the real purpose of life, right? And, and I think that, uh, you know, we are good in society, aren't we, especially it seems in this country, of keeping death at an arm's length. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. Uh, maybe some of you have seen where, um, I, forget, I think it was in Florida, 
uh, this started, I think it started down there, a uh, funeral home where you could, uh, instead of going inside and being confronted with a, with a corpse there, you can come through what's, what's really like a drive-through bank uh, window, and there's buttons there with people's names on. You press the button, and the camera view comes up of the, of the casket with the person's uh, you know, remains there, and you look at it for as long as you want, then you drive away. And again, we, we've, we've become so um, good at, again, keeping death at an arm's distance and not really recognizing it for what it is. And probably, I'm sure, makes a lot of people uncomfortable. But again, it's not as if God has left us with no hope. You know, just the opposite. Uh, it's, uh, we have a tremendous message of hope to give. What else can we say, right, at a funeral for someone? Um, I've been at a couple, unfortunately, they weren't Lutheran, I've got to say that up front, where it was the whole address to the congregation was about what a great person this person was, what a great life they lived, how many lives they touched during their time here on earth. And um, boy, you know, and if anything, you leave a service like that feeling worse than when you came in because you missed the person more than, than when the service started. And, you know, what a shame. That's not the way God wants us to, to look at death and life beyond the grave. In fact, he has given us uh, just an incredible amount of material so that that wouldn't be our conclusion. Okay? All right. Yes? Exactly. So, again, the comment for those uh, listening was that that is really the only way we can get through a, the death of a loved one, the tragedy of that person being taken, uh, life being taken from us in our midst. That is, you're right, that is the only way to get, for us as Christians, to, to get through that. And again, uh, again, I don't know what else you say at, you know, at a funeral if you don't have that. Uh, it, there's just nothing really much there, I don't think. Or you can say something like, and their memory lives on, or, well, yeah, it's true. But again, where's the, where's the comfort in that? So again, uh, great idea here, especially on All Saints Day, to talk about this and talk about, again, the hope, the sure and certain hope we have in Jesus Christ. Anything else then before we move on to 1 Thessalonians 4? All right, let's go on. And uh, this is a great section. I tell you, it would be hard to get through a Lutheran funeral service and a graveside committal without hearing this section read. It is one of the uh, primary and most comforting sections speaking about the second coming of Christ that we have in all of Scripture. And let me just kind of set this up again um, with a little context. Thessalonica was a, a major city in Asia Minor. Uh, we think it, uh, by the time of Paul, we think it was about 200,000 people living there. So not a small, by that, back at that time, that was huge. That was a lot. Uh, it was a leading city in the province of Macedonia. Asia Minor was divided up, or I'm sorry, Greece was divided up into Macedonia and Achaia. And this is in Macedonia, huge, uh, important uh, uh, city. It was an important seaport. It was right on the Ignatian Way, which was a major highway that went from Rome to the east. Uh, sort of like the I-80, you might say, of its day. And so they used it, the Romans used it for moving troops and, of course, for commerce. And so it was an international city. It was a very sophisticated city. 
a lot of uh, very important leaders and even some government officials there. Uh, you can read about Paul's time there in Acts 17, and uh, he and Silas had a great deal of, of success, first of all, success in the sense of the gospel. Uh, and then the Jews became very jealous and enraged and uh, came to the house of Jason. They never laid hands on Paul, but they dragged Jason, with whom Paul was staying, out and uh, were, were going to beat him, actually. And uh, so anyway, it was a situation that started great, and then there became great persecution. And again, that's in Acts uh, 17. Now, more immediately, uh, Thessalonians was one of the first, if not the first epistle, we think, written around the year 52 or 53 A.D. So it's written about 20 years after Christ uh, rose and ascended into heaven. And Paul had been preaching, certainly, about the fact that Christ is going to return. And so the people in Thessalonica began to wonder, hey, 20 years have gone by here now. What about our friends and our family members who have died? What's going to happen to them? Are they going to participate in anything when Christ comes, or are they just dead and gone? Is it only we who would be alive when Christ returns? And so Paul is seeking to address that question, and in so doing provides us with a great deal of, of very comforting and encouraging information when it comes to the second coming of Christ. So let's read this through, and then we'll go back and, and uh, look at it in more detail. Okay, so verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring, him, bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. All right, so again, a great section, and again, uh, I'm sure many of you have heard this at funerals uh, and or committal services. It's one of the most um, uplifting sections we have. So Paul starts out here, you know, we don't want you to be uninformed. We don't want you to be ignorant about uh, those who are asleep. Now, by those who are asleep, is Paul referring to those who fell asleep at the late service during the, during the sermon? No. Uh, <laughs> a little joke. Uh, asleep is a common biblical uh, image or way of, a way of referring to death itself. Okay? And so you'll see this used throughout the scriptures uh, uh, to re reference death itself. And when you think about it, isn't going to sleep each night and entrusting yourself to the Lord sort of a precursor for falling asleep ultimately in the Lord when this life is done? When you stop and think about it, it really is. You know, you, you go to bed at night 
you uh, say your prayers to the Lord, and you entrust yourself to the Lord, and you simply fall asleep. And uh, Luther was very fond of that, of that image as well. And I think, uh, I should have looked this up someplace, he even referred to it as sort of practicing for death, you know, before, before it would come. So again, uh, and, and some have gone off in historical ways of speaking about a soul sleep that happens after death. We do not believe that at all. The metaphor is simply one to, to draw a comparison, I guess you would say, falling asleep in the Lord. And notice there, he wants them to be informed so that they don't grieve as others do who have no hope. He's not saying so that you don't grieve, because we do grieve at death. But don't grieve as other people do who have no hope. In other words, don't be just like the other people who have nothing to base any, any type of hope upon whatsoever, because you have hope, in other words. So we don't want you to be like that. Um, now notice, in verse 14 at the beginning, how does Paul refer to Jesus' death? Does he refer to it as sleep? No. Notice there, when he's talking about Jesus, he uses the word death. And we think this is probably to, again, drive home the point that, you know, Jesus didn't just pass out there on the cross. He didn't just, um, you know, kind of faint and then go into the tomb. Uh, he actually died, okay? So if there's any doubt out there, you know, Paul is very, very explicit here. It's, it's interesting. That's the only place in this section where, he, you know, he's talking sleep, 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 death, and go back to sleep again. It's with Christ. He wants to establish for sure that he died, Okay. For since, uh, verse 14, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so the, the uh, uh, comparison is here, Jesus died and rose again, what's going to happen with all of the believers? You die and you rise again, right? Just like 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul calls Jesus the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. In other words, he's the first one and there's going to be much, much more, many, many more to follow. First fruits is an agricultural term to refer to the first of the harvest that comes out. And you know that there's a whole field left of harvest out there yet to come. And that's where that phrase first fruits comes from. And so the point here is that follow the pattern. Jesus died and rose again. Christians are going to die and rise again, physically, bodily, rise again. Okay, um, it's going on. Even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So on that day when Christ returns, all those who have fallen asleep in him will be coming with him. And then it says here, for this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. Now this is kind of interesting, this, this by a word from the Lord. It appears here that Paul got this directly from the Lord. Now, we do not have an account in the Gospels, for example, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, of Jesus actually doing this, of Jesus saying this to uh, either any of the other disciples uh, or later on to Paul after his conversion either. There's nothing in the book of Acts where this is laid out exactly like this at all. So, but that is not a problem for us. I mean, we don't have everything that Jesus said to all of his disciples or all the apostles. And so it's clear, though, either this came as a direct revelation from God to Paul 
or at some point in time, either the Lord himself uh, or maybe through the other apostles, told Paul about this process. In other words, what's going to happen on the last day. But he makes a point here to say, you know, this is not something I'm making up. This came by a word from the Lord. So, that we who are alive. Now, the we here is the generic sense of we, meaning all Christians. People who are alive, Christians who are alive at that point. It doesn't necessarily mean that Paul uh, thought he was going to be right there when Christ came. Certainly could have thought that. But we who are alive, meaning Christians who are alive, until the coming of the Lord, notice there, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So in other words, those who are alive on the last day are not going to go first. <laughs> You've got to wait your turn. So they will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So you're concerned about those who have fallen asleep. They're going to get to go first on the last day. Okay? So good. Now, verse 16, for the Lord himself, Christ himself, will descend from heaven. Kind of interesting. This matches right up, doesn't it, with Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascends into heaven. Remember the disciples are standing there gazing up, and, and a cloud takes him out of their sight. And remember the two angels are there, and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand there basically staring up into heaven? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you, will come again in the same manner you have seen him go. And this confirms that. They saw him go that route up, up into the sky, away from them, and notice there he will uh, descend from heaven with a cry of command. So there is going to be some sort of command given, whether it is rise or you know, whatever it might be. We're not, we're not privy to that. Um, with a voice of an archangel. Now, the only, uh, first of all, this points out again that there are, appear to be, different ranks of angels within the heavenly realm. We've got angels, archangels, cherubim, seraphim, and so on. And so it seems, we think, to be sort of a gradation of different ranks or types of angels. And again, we know precious little about this, so we don't speculate, other than just they have different names, it seems, or different designations. Um, and, uh, of course, Michael is the only uh, archangel that is named uh, in the scriptures. Gabriel is actually just referred to as an angel, not an archangel. So uh, perhaps he was a lower rank. Uh, he's named also. But uh, Michael is the only archangel that's named. Anyway, moving on. And with the sound of the trumpet of God, and notice here, the dead in Christ will rise first. So there again is a reference to that bodily resurrection of those who are dead. Uh, you know, you think about what is that going to be like? Just can't imagine that, right? All the cemeteries all over the world, even those who are, have long since been covered over with, with other civilizations, every person uh, will be resurrected, Christians with a glorious new body, uh, one that Paul says will be uh, incorruptible, in other words, no longer have any of the impacts of sin on us, and immortal, no longer able to die. And we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and Paul says, at the sound of the trumpet, right? So this, this matches up perfectly with 1 Corinthians 15. It's almost an echo of 1 Corinthians 15. So the dead in Christ get to go first. So you're, you're worried about them, Thessalonians? 
they're actually going to get to go first. Okay? Um, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Now, I would be remiss, I see we have not a lot of time left, but I would be remiss if I did not refer to this caught up together in that verse in the Latin, in the Latin Vulgate, that caught up is the word rapture, which is where the millennialists today get the theology of, or part of the theology, of a rapture. And uh, I want to spend a lot of time, as we, we had a whole Bible class on this, but there, there's a belief among some Christians that before Judgment Day, in fact, a thousand years before Judgment Day, Christ is going to come and secretly take up or rapture all Christians. You may have used to be, I don't see them so much anymore. It's been a while since I've seen one. But uh, sometimes I would see a bumper sticker that said, in case of rapture, this car will be unoccupied. you ever see a, that bumper sticker? And uh, that's a reference to that. In other words, I'm a Christian. When the rapture comes, this car might be empty. <laughs> so it, it's, it's, I don't know if it's humorous, but it, it's kind of their understanding of what's going to happen on the last day. And it's going to be supposedly a secret taking up of these Christians. Then Christ will establish a thousand-year reign in which there will be opportunity for all who are left to repent and, and be saved and so, up, uh, so on. A thousand-year reign or a thousand-year kingdom. Now, I want to make clear, we do not believe that. We do not believe that from the Scriptures. We are amongst the groups that are called amillennialists. Uh, we do believe in a... <laughs> uh, Amillennialists in that we do not believe in a literal thousand-year reign uh, of Christ here. Uh, in a sense, we believe that since Christ rose and ascended, we are living in the New Testament or the end times right now. It, not necessarily just a thousand years in scope. It could, it could be who knows how long. Uh, and a couple points here. First of all, what is said here matches up perfectly, as I said, with 1 Corinthians 15. And it's clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul is not talking about some sort of a quiet rapture. He is talking about the second coming of Christ. And we would say the same thing here. What is secret about this? You've got a cry of a command. You've got a trumpet call of God. Does this sound like anything, you know, sort of a secret that nobody's going to be hearing about and knowing about? And gee, what happened? Where are all these people? No. Uh, not, not in the least. So again, we would say this is not referring to some pre-judgment day rapture at some point, but is referring to the very same thing, the second coming of Christ on the last day. Okay? It has been appointed and is already established. Uh, none again, the great comfort will meet the Lord in the air, always be with the Lord. And notice that last line, the last verse is so very important. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. And that's what we do today, isn't it? We encourage one another as brothers and sisters in Christ when someone has experienced a death in their family or a close uh, friend of theirs, we encourage them with these words, you know? We don't say them in just sort of a, you know, um, magical, uh, cold way. You know, we empathize with people, again, that have lost a loved one, but again, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. And Paul didn't want the Thessalonians to be, again, grieving as others who have no hope. We have the sure and certain hope in Jesus Christ. All right, let me stop here before we go on to the gospel lesson. 
Any either comments or questions about this uh, great section of Scripture from 1 Thessalonians 4? All right, let's go on. We'll finish off here with the gospel lesson for next week. And uh, this is a rather interesting parable. There has been a lot written about this parable. And I guess I would encourage us not to get lost in the weeds here, the, the individual details, so that we miss the major point of the parable. Again, a parable, we would say, is a story that Jesus composes He uses earthly details in the story, like here a wedding celebration, and he wants to teach us something about life in his kingdom as a result of telling that story. Many times, the parables and the point that they make are diametrically the opposite of the way the world operates. In other words, think of the parable when the workers are out in the vineyard, remember that one? And it goes out at 6 a.m., at 9 a.m., at noon, at 3, and finally at the 11th hour, And what happens at the end of the day? Pays them all the same, right? Everybody gets the full load. You don't get one one eleventh or one twelfth of the the pay. And again, that's a parable to teach us. The world would never operate that way, right? There'd be protests. There'd be picketing. If if that were to happen outside that vineyard, uh, the, the, the vineyard workers union would be out there the very next day. And instead, that's not the way it is with grace, though. Everybody gets the whole thing, right? No matter how long you've been in the vineyard, no matter how long you've been in the kingdom. And so that's just one example. So, again, uh, uh, Jesus did about a third of his teaching using parables. So they're they're quite important for us to to look at. All right, let's go. uh, We'll read it through first and then go back and pick off what we can here. Verse 1, Matthew 25. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go gather to the dealers and buy buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in, in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. All right, quickly, looking at the clock here. Uh, Bridegroom, Christ. Yeah, Jesus, coming on the last day. Marriage feast, kind of an easy one. Heaven or the marriage feast of the Lamb in his kingdom, which has no end, right? There are ten there who are waiting for it. Five are wise, five are foolish. Why are the wise ones wise? They have extra oil. Um, We'll we'll go through this a little bit, but you can see it's not just that they had oil in their lamp. And there's a a big controversy with these these lamps or were they torches. That's what I say. Don't get lost in the details. They had, we think there was extra oil that they brought. Because you see in verse 7, the foolish ones say, 
that our lamps are going out. So in other words, these lamps were burning the whole time. And the oil was almost gone for the foolish ones. And the wise ones had brought extra oil along that they could then put in and be ready. Be ready. Be prepared when the bridegroom would come. Now, we don't know, we wish we knew more about first century uh, wedding customs in that day. We, we, I'm not going to make up stuff here. We just don't know a lot. And even the, the good Lutheran commentaries will say that. We wish we knew more. We don't know, for example, what role these women would play. It appears that they would wait for the bridegroom and then accompany the bridegroom into the celebration. So some have speculated that they were there and this accompanying of the bridegroom would be to bring honor and, and uh, you know, um, uh, hospitality to the, to the bridegroom. But again, we, we don't know for sure. What is the oil? There's been a lot written on this. And I, I would say this, I personally have always taken this to, to be faith or, or trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Uh, upon reading the commentaries, I think, uh, and again, these are Lutheran Concordia Commentary Series commentaries, so we can trust them. I think a, a, a good point was made that it's whatever it is that makes you ready for the coming of the bridegroom. Now, certainly faith in Jesus Christ would be first and foremost, wouldn't it? The primary thing that has you ready for the coming of the bridegroom. Let me ask you this. Do we make ourselves ready for the coming of the bridegroom? No, not at all. This is not based on our efforts, our best uh, intentions. It is God who makes us and keeps us ready for the coming of the bridegroom on the last day. The foolish ones knew what was going to knew what the, the future was going to be. They were out there waiting, and they didn't act responsibly and bring more oil. The wise ones did and brought more oil. So some are ready on that day when the bridegroom comes. Some are not ready on that day when the bridegroom comes. And notice it's kind of harsh near the end, isn't it? When they go up and, well, first of all, it seems kind of unkind, doesn't it, that the wise ones would not share their oil with the, uh, with the foolish ones? Uh, at the beginning of verse 9, that's one of the strongest, in Greek, that's one of the strongest negative ways you can express someone uh, something. It, it's almost like saying there is no way, absolutely not, not a chance that there will be enough oil for all of us. And so the decision was... Um, are none of us going to be ready if we share our oil, or are some going to be ready? I've often thought of this, too, and I don't know if this is intended in the parable, but can, can somebody else be ready based on your readiness when the bridegroom comes? No. No. I can't be ready based on my brother's readiness or my parents' readiness or my, you know, anybody else. I've either got the oil or I don't, Right? And again, I don't know if that's intended, but it certainly is true uh, for us uh, today. Now, what about the answer? Uh, doesn't that seem kind of harsh? Lord, Lord, open to us, but he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And you know, again, I think again, this goes back to what we were talking about before, I think, a little bit, 
that some people think that on the last day, oh, everybody's going to be let in. You know, sure, come on in. And that's not what we see. That's not what we see. A couple chapters earlier in Matthew 23, remember the other parable that Jesus told about the guy who's preparing a banquet and he tells his work, uh, servants to go out and gather people and they all have excuses and so on. Then he finally gets in and he goes out in the highway and the byway and compels them to come in. Then the part that's really striking is the king comes in. And remember, he sees someone there without the proper wedding clothes. And does the, does the king say, oh, that's all right, you know, you can stay? No. How did you get in here without the proper clothes? And he kicks him out. And then Jesus adds, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I got to tell you, this is not, you know, some people, we don't like to hear Jesus talking like this, right? We like to hear the, the loving, come on to me, all you are weak and heavy laden, and so on. But there is another side to the last day that we have to always be cognizant of, that there is only one way in, either you've got oil or not, there's only one way in, either you've got the wedding garment or not, namely the robe of Christ's righteousness with which he has clothed us, not that we have clothed ourselves. And so we want to be careful that we don't make the mistake of the people Amos was referring to in our Old Testament lesson, that we have some sort of misguided understanding about what's going to happen on the last day. It, the, the contrast could not be more dramatic on the last day, that there will be joyous celebration for all who are in Christ, and unfortunately, the exact opposite. Uh, for all those who are not. And we can only thank God and praise God that we will be, uh, as Jesus says in Matthew 25, amongst the sheep and not the goats on the last day. Again, nothing we have done. And again, if nothing else, as we close here, uh, that emphasizes the importance for us as a church to be doing everything possible to get this word out and that people are, again, made ready by God for that last day. None of us knows when that day will come for us, and there will be no more chance after that. So again, there's an urgency that we see in the parables of Jesus when he talks about the last day. Okay? All right, I'm sorry, we won't have time for any questions or comments. I talked too much, I guess, today. But let's close in with a benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you.